For the fifth episode of the J-Curves Latin American Power Women in Tech series, I'm thrilled to welcome Jenna Godhealth, co-founder and CEO at Latitude, a platform helping build the next generation of iconic tech startups in Latin America through a dedicated fellowship and fund. Prior to co-founding Latitude, Jenna led growth and marketing at Duolingo from 3 million to 200 million users and was in charge of growth in Latin America in Tumblr. Jenna, so great to have you as my guest. Welcome to the J-Curve. Olga, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being with me today. I would love to start with some history and context. What prompted you to join Yuri and Brian and start Latitude after spending so many years living in the U.S. and working for global companies like Duolingo? It's probably the highest leverage thing I could do to, quote unquote, give back or to make a difference in Latin America, which is the region that I'm from. And, you know, like Jenny from the block, you can't, you can't have to worry about the rocks that I got. I'm still Jenny from the block, whatever. I make jokes that aren't funny all the time, but I'm from Latin America. And I know that I'm extremely privileged in the sense that I had the best education and I got to learn English from a very young age. Because of that, I was able to uncover really great opportunities and to work with some of the best companies, tech companies in the world, arguably, And I spent a lot of my career helping U.S. companies figure out how to grow and in some cases, how to grow in Latin America. But I feel like because I had access to the best founders and tools and education, I have this opportunity to bring a lot of these connections and wealth of knowledge and even potentially capital that is worth five to six X our currency in Brazil and many other currencies in Latin America down to Latin America and that it's a little bit my responsibility to do it. Otherwise, I feel like I took the money and ran. And then the second thing is just the sheer opportunity. I think we're in an incredible moment for Latin America. We have incredible founders who have now worked at top tech companies abroad and locally. We're starting to see unicorns. We have an influx of cash. We have huge problems to be solved. Tech is is very behind in a very clear way. So there's a lot of a lot of things across all industries that need to be built. And there's an opportunity to do that now. So it's just a really exciting time for tech in Latin America. And it's also the fact that there's going to be a lot more barriers for founders in Latin America than in the U.S. And so there's also a lot of opportunity to make a real impact. And then the third part is is just because I the opportunity to work with my co-founders. I met Brian Reckworth and Yuri Danielchenko in 2020. And it just really felt serendipitous and like we were a really good combination. And it felt unique and like a unique opportunity to to build something together. And so that's why I'm here today. So how did you, the three of you came together as, as a team? Was there any aha moment? Oh, we actually could build something great together. Like what was the moment for you? Yeah, it was, it was a lot less exciting, I would say, than that in a way. It kind of all happened piecemeal, but it, but it was really cool. We, you know, so I was doing a program called On Deck, which I'm a big, fa- a big fan of. It was founder, founded by Eric Torenberg. It's in the US. And I was trying to figure out what was my next thing after Duolingo, after the Mike Bloomberg campaign. I was actually thinking of building a platform for single moms because I wanted to make it easier for women to be able to decide whether they wanted to have kids on their own or not. But so that's kind of what I was thinking of doing, but I really cared about giving back community, meaningful things and looking into the future. Brian was also doing on deck. So we were in the same cohort and he reached out and said, Hey, you're Brazilian. We should, we should talk. And I didn't know who Brian was. I didn't know what Viva Real was, which is this company that sold for $600 million last year in Brazil because I've been out of Brazil for 17 years and I just wasn't paying attention. And so there was a lot going on in my life at that time, professionally and personally. So I said, listen, let's just talk later. I kind of postponed it. And then by the time I talked to him a month later, first of all, I felt extremely embarrassed when I realized that like 
Brian's incredible and I, I shouldn't have like waved them off like that, that I, he had just written the manuscript for his book. So I read the book cover to cover like in one day and sent him feedback as a way to apologize. And it happened that I had driven across the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast. So the time we had our call, I was in Napa, which happens to be just like 40 minutes away from where he lives. So it felt like, whoa, I had no idea you live here. And so we actually met up in person. Brian had met Yuri through someone else and they had started brainstorming and working together. And so it all kind of came together rather quickly. And we were talking about the future of Latin America and, you know, the opportunities and also the fact that as a Brazilian, I've seen the Brazilian economy be up and coming and exciting to foreigners twice and then crash. It's like, oh my God, it's the next thing. Bricks, blah, blah, blah. Crash. Ah, Brazil is having its moment. Latin America, crash. Now we're again on the, oh my God, it's having its moment. It's, it's exciting. And if we don't do anything differently, it will crash. So Brian and I had a deep conversation about that. And why is that the case? Because we've been meeting such incredible founders from Latin America, just really smart go-getters who are like scrappy because Latin Americans tend to be scrappy and just like well, inevitable and how they will face kind of unfair disadvantages that might get in the way of them solving big problems for, for people in Latin America or even building significant tech companies in, in the world and what we could do at scale to potentially make a difference. Uh, you mentioned that you met in 2020. So I'm wondering, what was it like building Latitude among COVID-19 pandemic as a decentralized organization? Possibly you guys even haven't met in person before you started the, the company? Yeah. So I, well, I met Brian, like, you know, within the conversations because we happened to be close to each other. I didn't meet Yuri until we had already been working together for at least six months, which is crazy. And I didn't meet most other yeah, team members, you know, in person, but we all met online. I personally think, and I feel a little bit guilty saying that, but I think that COVID-19 ended up being a good thing for Latitude because I don't know that I would have had as many conversations with, with founders and players in the ecosystem. I don't think that Brian would have had the same conversations. I don't think that all of these things would have happened if it hadn't been for the fact that we were just at home. You know, I had already been working remotely since 10 years ago. So I've been working remotely for 10 years. So for me, this was very normal. But everyone else suddenly was very game for talking and having Zooms and, and meeting online no matter where they were. It also really opened our minds to like, wow, Latin America is an incredible, huge region. It's actually the largest latitude, the region that occupies the largest latitude in, on the globe, which is one of the reasons why latitude is called latitude. And we don't really talk across borders. You know, we... I joke that Latin America is Latin America for Americans, because when you're Mexican, you're not like all the time thinking about yourself as a region. If you're in Brazil, you kind of don't really consider yourself Latin American and the other Latin Americans don't really consider you a part of it. But there's so much opportunity and so much things, so many more things in common than not in common that now that everyone was sitting at their computer, it didn't matter how far you were. We could all be a part of the same thing. And we could bring the best talent, the best speakers in the world, not just the ones who happen to be in the same city of a program, but anyone who was in Silicon Valley or, or New York or Europe or wherever, you know, Silicon Valley is like an idea to come speak to Latin American founders. So like borders were totally dissolved and working remote became normalized. We hired people all of, across Latin America. And I think, you know, tech has also significantly benefited, quote unquote, from COVID-19. And so this is an amazing moment for the digitization of everything and for every all the eyes to be on this, quote, like, industry, if you can call it an industry, for all of the investment opportunities that we're seeing. So I can't complain about COVID-19. Of course, there's a number of things that we've had to refrain from doing, but I think it'll be even that more special when we're able to do initiatives in person. 
I'm actually totally with you on COVID diminishing the borders as well as accelerating digital penetration in, uh, in emerging markets specifically in the U.S. as well. But in one of the social media, you mentioned that you started Latitude with a mission to help build the Latin American tech entrepreneurship ecosystem from end to end. And I'm really curious, what does end to end mean to you with respect to Latitude? Yeah, so I'll also just add a disclaimer that like the Latin American tech ecosystem has been born and growing for decades now. So in no way, shape or form are we starting this from scratch. There's been a lot of work done already uh, that we get to build on. So that's the first thing. But there's still a lot to build and a lot to develop. And end to end to me means all the way from the ideation moment from a founder or even pre-ideation, like the moment that someone might become a great founder, all the way to the whole investment ecosystem. And like there's a number of nuances there. And so we're at Latitude, we're tackling all of these different points in the trajectory. From the moment where someone might become an amazing founder, we we want to give them like that safe space to quit their jobs or to potentially consider something new because normally there isn't when you when you do that you know your family and friends look at you and you're and they're like what are you doing and you're like oh i don't know what i want to do i think maybe i want to start a company oh yeah what what do you want to start i don't know yet and that's not an acceptable answer it's like are you crazy like you're like you quit your job to do what like you don't even have an idea but actually in my experience my ideas only come when i'm in motion i'm not a person who sits in like how you know showers and comes up with ideas i comes up come up with ideas when i'm talking to people when i'm like in the middle of really interesting conversations or watching talks that's when my ideas happen and so we need to allow for for that moment and that moment doesn't happen because feel, people feel really self-conscious about like not doing something really useful right now especially the best of the best because those are the overachievers who have like aced a bunch of tests and they got into the best job and then they got all the promotions and then then and like the thought of waking up and not having like a specific calendar and things to achieve, it doesn't really resonate, but you need to give them that space. And so Latitude comes in and says, okay, look, here's a prestigious program where you're actually learning a bunch of interesting things with a bunch of other really accomplished people and you're making your way and no one's going to ask you questions. So like all the way from there. And, and by the way, here are some ways in which you could come up with an idea and evaluate different markets and meet your co-founder and figure out next steps. And maybe even understand that you don't want to be a founder, but you want to be an employee at an early stage tech startup. So from that moment to like, oh, I have a co-founder, I have a team, I'm building, I'm raising Series A, et cetera, all the way to the investment ecosystem, which goes from tiny little angel checks. So growing and professionalizing the whole angel investment thing, which is right now very like ad hoc WhatsApp groups where people like message each other like, oh, you know, you want to invest with me on this? And a lot of people get left out of that because they're just not part of these groups, but they have know-how and money that could benefit a lot of these founders. And a lot of this is done kind of very in a disorganized fashion, which is not even easy for the angel investors to administer because a lot of them have their own companies that they're running. So that all the way to the investment VC ecosystem, which still has a long way to go in Latin America and is in development very quickly, but there's just a lot of room for more VCs, for more theses and ways of understanding how to negotiate with those VCs, relationships between them. And there's just a lot to be done in the region. And also from the founder's perspective, I think there's a lot to be done from a, educating founders and what the fundraising process looks like and, and how to pitch and what works, what doesn't work, what are fair terms, what are unfair terms, and, and how to understand that so that we can build better and so that we can help founders protect themselves, but also then help VCs 
by making it so that founders are are stronger and and feel more empowered to build bigger companies and go beyond. Then there's the middle, which is like the talent. Like you're building out the whole ecosystem, you're pouring money into it, but then who's going to work at these companies and actually make it happen given this? And you don't have enough PMs and you don't have enough people with marketing experience at tech startups. So we're going to start launching programs for talent. And then we can help the best startups find the best talent across Latin America now that we're all borderless. This is amazing how few founders actually know what Vinci Capital as an asset class is outside of Sao Paulo. And even in Sao Paulo. Even in Sao Paulo. Honestly, like I, you know, I've been in tech since Tumblr, arguably. So I was, so that's been like 10 years. I didn't understand how VC worked until this year when I started to like have to figure out how to teach others and started interacting with the VC ecosystem and then arguably became an investor myself. Like a lot of the terms that kept being thrown at me, I didn't know what they were people were talking about. I didn't really understand negotiation terms. Like this is not stuff that you learn in any job. It's not stuff you learn in school. And I was part of the executive team at Duolingo, which raised a lot of very successful rounds from the top PCs in the world. But I wasn't the CEO and I wasn't there reading the contract and I wasn't negotiating the terms with the investor myself. So I didn't learn a lot of stuff. So that means that even at the best tech startups, the vast majority of employees, like 90 to 95% of employees don't know anything about this. And when you're a founder trying to raise money, it's, it matters how much information you have. Another important point you touched on is talents. Diminishing borders with Latin America have pros and cons as very well-educated human resources became available to large global tech corporations like Google and Facebook that pay in dollars. So I wonder, how do you think about the competition for talents? I tend to think about things very long-term. So I don't see... Yes, I think that we're going to have to see how things pan out. And I think that some tech startups are going to suffer because they're going to lose top talents to more established US-based or international corporations. And that's going to be really rough. And it's hard to say what the outcome of that is going to be. But I think long-term for the ecosystem, even that is good. Because now you have people who maybe like are incredible, but didn't have the opportunity to get a visa to be in the US or to travel. And they get the opportunity to work at top-tier developed tech companies from the US and learn those norms that they then are going to be able to pass on to their next company. And maybe they're going to be able to become founders. They're going to be able to educate more people. And so that knowledge spreads that way. The wealth spreads too. They're being paid more, you know, than we're building better economies in our country. So I think that's good too. And it raises the bar for everyone. There's still going to be amazing talent that's going to be interested in the super, super early stage opportunities that are not going to be Facebook. It's going to be the stuff happening locally or who are passionate about the ecosystem or passionate about building something for people in this region. And we are seeing a lot of VC money pour in. So hopefully we will be able to s compete at some level. I love your point about that competition over talent will essentially boost the quality of startups operating in the region. I haven't thought about that. When you think about Latitude, what is the main differentiator from other early stage players in tech and VC ecosystem in Latin America? And what is the key value add that Latitude brings that makes it so attractive to the founders? We're still figuring it out every day. So far, I think what we bring, number one, is this community. We now have over 700 founders as part of our community that we onboarded over the past year and a half. It's arguably you know, difficult to get into Latitude. So we make sure that everyone that you meet will be impressive to you in some way and that you have a lot to learn. We also really spend a lot of effort to curate a give first mentality in the community. And so that is a big difference because every single node 
can accelerate the speed of development of every startup significantly. Like if someone is trying to figure out how do I build a design organization or like what marketing agency should I hire in Mexico or should I hire one or, hey, have you worked with this VC or whatever? How do I do OKRs? Instead of Googling or trying to like watch a class, a webinar, someone can just say, hey, I just did this yesterday. Get on the Zoom with me. I'll explain real quick. So I think number one is the community. I think, you know, our educational programs are awesome. We focus on making global, like a creme de la creme, global standards, like best in class education program, not like good for LATAM. So it is focused on LATAM or for LATAM talent, but it's the best of the best. And anyone arguably can participate. In terms of the funding, we have succeeded so far, and I hope we will continue to be fairly neutral and agnostic and serve sort of as like a resource for the other funds in Latin America and in the U.S. Now I want to move to a slightly different direction and talk about your experience in growth. You've achieved spectacular results in Duolingo, helping the company grow from 3 million users to 200 million users. Can you share some tips for the Latin American founders that have achieved product market fit and now want to double down on growth? How do you hack growth? It's a really good question. And it really depends on, on the startup, of course. It depends on whether you're B2B or you're B2C. So I'll just share some principles, I think, that I developed or learned over the years. First, both for Tumblr and Duolingo, I really did not spend any money. And that wasn't because I was trying to be like amazing. It was because we had no budget for marketing. And so I was just like, had to figure it out. And having to figure it out forces you as a product, which luckily, you know, both products were great, especially Duolingo had an incredible product team. It forces you as a product to build something that is actually good. I know that sounds silly, but it's easy to sort of bypass that step if you're buying users and you're seeing an influx of users and you kind of get addicted to that. And then they're using your thing and then you realize you can't decrease your marketing budget because then you're going to lose your users. And so then you can, now you're spending money. So it really forces you to build something that's, that's actually good and that people actually want to tell other people about. So that's one. And also it forces you to learn what your real, and I, I put this in quotation, what are your, what some of your best organic acquisition levers might be. Whereas if you're just throwing money in marketing, it might be a little bit harder. Second thing is that for growth, there's a lot of different things you can do. It's a very large field. And so one very kind of like scientific and unscientific way that we approached it was because I was leading marketing and growth at Duolingo, which meant that I was leading like PR, communications, government partnership, some of the copywriting and social media, but also the product growth team that A-B tested features and came up with like ideas for what we should add or modify and how we should measure whether that improved growth from the product's perspective, like the actual, you know, day one retention and, and metrics like that. I put it all in one sheet normally, and I would prioritize them based on like, what do I think is going to be the outcome in terms of our North Star metric, like the metric we most care about at Duolingo, which was daily active users. So I would come up with, with the team, we'd come up with like an educated guess, like how many users do we think we can get if we do this? And how much time do we think it's going to take to do this? Because it was money. So the investment is time. And then stack rank. And try to like approach what you think is going to be like the highest effectiveness, like highest ROI initiative that you could possibly do. The other thing that I would say is if you're going to A-B test, which is very attractive, you need to make sure that you understand statistical significance or very basics of it, which just means that you know that the things you're testing are not producing results out of chance, but rather that they're replicable results. So I know for a fact that if this button is black versus if it's blue, the black one is going to get, I don't know, 20% more clicks. 
And I know that because I've, I've ran this experiment with this many people, and there's very easy ways to calculate this online. I'm not a mathematician myself. I'm a philosophy major. But you need to understand this concept because I see a lot of startups getting really carried away with A-B testing with not enough users. And then what happens is you just get really excited about your A-B testing results and you spin in, in circles and you'll never even know that you're spinning in circles until you fail. So that's another thing to consider. PR is my favorite growth channel, but of course it depends on your what you're building. Another like little hack that I like for B2B, we were talking today in the office hours, is coming up with ways to develop trust. So like B2B products need trust because if you're like trying to choose something for your company, you're often like, oh, you know, like, how do I know that this is a real product or like that this, I, this person's a good professional? Am I going to make a mistake for my company? Trust is a big thing normally for a B2B. So things that provide trust are logos on your, lo- on your homepage of well-known companies or quotes from people that have some sort of fancy sounding title. You have to put something on there that makes anyone show up and be like, oh, okay, they're not random people off the street. They have some credibility. Actually, I love that you're leaning towards organic growth. And that's one of my biggest concerns with the proliferation of capital. When you have a lot of money to buy customers, it's really, really hard to stay disciplined and focused on manual, low scalable kind of acquisitions. And the trust is especially important. Talking about the trust, because you bootstrap growth for Tumblr in Brazil and Latin America, I have to ask you this question. What are the distinctive unique qualities of Brazilian consumer and how does this profile compare to Argentinian or Chilean consumer besides low trust environment that is prevalent in all of these countries? Look, I don't think I have a very informed answer here, even though I've worked in all those markets, because I see a lot more similarities across Latin American markets than I see differences. I can tell you differences between the Latin American market and a European market or the US or China or India. But when it comes to Argentina, Chile, Brazil, yes, there are nuances and there. Depending on your company, maybe there's different ways of doing business. But what I learned from Tumblr and from Duolingo is that humans, especially in Latin America, are very similar to each other. And if you treat your growth, your international growth from that perspective, and you can treat it from that perspective, then you're at an advantage because it means that you can come up with initiatives that can be done over and over again in different markets and that you can learn and scale versus for the products or companies that end up like trying to become like more nuanced for each market and really pay attention to the different differences. It becomes hard to scale because, for example, from an A-B testing perspective, any new feature, or any new thing you test, you need to then build all the different iterations for each one of those for the different nuances that you've built. So you build a lot of tech debt and complexity that slows you down. So it's it's an advantage to assume that humans are the same. Even in, in the case of Duolingo, we did it in some extreme cases. Very few cases we were not, I wouldn't say we were wrong, but we ended up having to modify things a little more and specifically China and India. But everything else was actually very similar. Latin Americans, yeah, they're, you know, in some countries more than others, but in general, they're this distressful. There's a lot of fraud. You can get kidnapped on the streets. The government is not to be trusted, et cetera. Like there's a lot of income inequality. But we're also, in Brazil in particular, I think this is true of other Latin American countries with less experience, just love humor and laughing and things that are fun. And I know that everyone loves humor and laughing and things that are fun. But for Tumblr, for example, we realized that the number one category was was humor in terms of like Tumblr's being accessed. So the strategy became, okay, let's go find the funniest people and influencers in Brazil and help them create or grow their Tumblr accounts because we know that they will draw attention. Of course, that was a big category all over the world, but there were 
nuances that we could see in terms of the, the data. Some countries, you know, there were other things, maybe maybe news was, was more so more prevalent. In Brazil, you know, in Latin America, we care about soccer and there's stuff like that that you can use if you're looking at it from a content perspective, for example. But I think from a product perspective, it's advantageous to treat humans equally. What fascinates me about entrepreneurship in emerging markets in Latin America specifically is the range of problems that founders in Western world can't even begin to understand. That gives a massive edge to local founders. What are some of the unique problems Latin America faces today that could become premises for massively scalable businesses? That's such an interesting question that I feel like I could talk to you for hours about. And Okay, so there are problems that are unique to Latin America, like, for example, kidnapping. I'm actually, I live in Miami in large part because I'm afraid of being kidnapped in Brazil. Not because I'm special or rich or anything like that, but because that happens and people just normalize that it happens and I, and I can't. So I remember many, many years ago, one of the first conversations I had with Luis Vanan, who's the founder and CEO of Duolingo when he was my client, was about how I really wanted to go talk to Uber and convince them to build a feature so that people can notify on Uber where someone was mugged or, or where they saw some sort of crime happen. I know this is a very niche example, and this is from 2013, so a long time ago. Safety, I think probably because of that, is, is one that luckily here we don't experience as much in, in Silicon Valley in the U.S. I don't know, there are problems like financial, economic fluctuations, like to, at the extent that we experience in Latin America. The income inequality, of course there's income inequality in the U.S., but it's very different in places like most developing countries. For example, so fintech is really big in Latin America right now. First of all, because like it was very rudimentary just a couple of years ago, very offline and traditional. And it's now starting to change, especially with Nubank and the IPO. And I feel like the rest of the world realizing that there's real money in Latin America because there's hundreds of millions of people instead of it being this niche little area. But there's also opportunity for banking for groups of people. So one of our founders actually started a, a business to provide banking services and saving services for house cleaners. So it actually started out as a, as a company focused on helping house cleaners identify what employers to work for and what employers not to work for based on feedback from other house cleaners. Like, did they pay you? Did they harass you? Things like that. And then they figured out that actually these people don't have any savings. And so how do you build like a banking service that's like targeted to that class? I think there's a lot of really cool social commerce things happening in Latin America right now, as has been happening, I think, in India and Southeast Asia. In the U.S. too, but it's just different when you have, for example, maybe one, the fact that we have large poor communities who like really need the income. That's, I think, a big differentiator when you have a lot of people who don't have money. The reason why they're doing something is very different. They need that. It's not just like, oh, this is nice side income or I'm not just learning Spanish because it would be nice to know a second language. It's like I'm learning English because my life depends on it and I will stick to it because I need to. That like in terms of a retention perspective or like the commitment from the user from a social commerce perspective. Also, I think we have an advantage because of those sort of developments. And then also because we tend to be as Latin Americans, I know that this is stereotypical, but just warmer and more inviting of other people into our homes. And we have stronger, maybe stronger knit communities. People are more in each other's businesses than they are here in the U.S. for better and for worse. And so from a social network, like a network perspective, that's really interesting, too, in terms of what that what that can do. What else? Of course, I'm really bullish on language learning. I think that learning English doubles or triples your income potential. And what's most exciting, quote unquote, for I think a tech investor in the US is or like a potential angel investor is that there's this stuff that you kind of know is going to happen. 
you know what it's like to be able to book your medical appointments online easily with no problem. You know what it's like to be able to send money to each other through Venmo or systems for small and medium businesses to even have a chance to digitize things and actually um, compete with bigger organizations or or systems that allow even big companies, but that are operating locally to digitize their data and organize it in a way that doesn't include human error and that can be sent to a lot of different stores so the salespeople can be informed about what to sell. Like there's just all these things that it's like, it's a no brainer. It's going to happen and it's happening or hasn't happened yet. The question is, what entrepreneur do you bet on? It's not like, is this idea crazy? You already know it's not a crazy idea. So I think that's a fun pitch, I think, for, for investors in the US. It's like you can buy into the future and at a discount if you look at Latin America. I think it's more the benefit, I'd rather say an advantage of someone like you who has this integrated expertise of understanding how emerging markets operate, as well as the best practices. And like you mentioned, living in the future while being in the US for 17 years, it's a very specific blended expertise that allows you to see the opportunity and predict the future, which is is pretty amazing. And finally, I'd love to move to rapid fire section. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. The first question would be, what is the most important aspect of successful partnership? Trust. How do you create a culture of psychological safety around failure? Trust. (laughs) And I know that that's, that's just like a really easy answer. You need to reward people for doing great things and not punish people. Open communication, vulnerability. Honesty. That's why it all goes back to trust. Transparency as much as you can so that everyone understands how decisions are being made. I'm a funny person for you to ask this. I feel like everyone ends up crying in a one-to-one with me. And on one hand, it's like, maybe I'm making everyone cry. On the other hand, I think it's maybe because I make people feel like they can cry and it's okay because at the end of the day, we're humans and interacting with each other at a human level first and a professional and efficiency level second. But it's, it's such a tough balance. What is your biggest professional fuck-up and what are the key learnings out of it? I've made a lot of professional fuck-ups. I guess I'll, I'll say two. One is I had the opportunity to join a startup a long time ago when I was in the beginning of my career. And it was a wine startup. It was a wine distribution startup. And it was either that or I could get a job at a digital media agency, which is what I had already been doing in New York. And I passed on the idea, I passed on the opportunity to join the startup because I thought that it wasn't as safe as the digital media marketing and I needed a visa to stay in the US. So I was just really laser focused on like what is safe because I need my visa. Similarly, just like I think a year before, I had an idea for a startup and I was scared to do it because I thought I was going to lose my visa. I was always like around the visa and it was probably like in my head because lack of information and fear. So I think I regretted those two decisions for many years later because I really think that what I wanted to build in terms of my startup idea had tons of legs and I like, and I just didn't even consider it. And two, because I ended up working for this crappy digital media agency and it was anything but safe. It was actually a very unsafe psychological environment, I would say. And, you know, I had to leave just a few months later and, and it was a mistake. And so thinking that a large or established corporation is safer for you is not, I think it, it can be a mistake. And then the other one is just like the whole beginning of my career is a fuck up. <laughs> the first three years of my career is a fuck up. I went to New York and I took a, like kind of a crappy internship because I really wanted to live in New York. And then I just was really miserable at my job. And then I took another kind of crappy job because I wanted the visa and that like one thing led to the next. I 
my learning there that I tried to share with as many people as possible is if things are going wrong for you right now in your career and it doesn't feel good, it's fine. It doesn't mean that you're on a bad path. It just means that it's not going okay now and that you're going to have a bunch of other chances to make it turn around. So my career really started at the age of 25 or 26. Although for maybe like my 20s, I talked about it as if it had been successful because the narrative also really matters and people really care about how how you position yourself and how you talk about yourself and like that, the the things you highlight on your resume per se. So I guess that's another learning that I would that I would share. The narrative really matters. But don't beat yourself up because things aren't aren't working out right now. Just figure out next steps. And I guess that's the main thing that probably and I bring that to latitude every day, which is you can only plan your next step. You can't I don't believe in planning a lot ahead. And I was asked a lot early in my career, like, oh, where do you want to be in five years? Or and I didn't know and I felt like such a loser. And now I realize that like there's just no way I could have known because there was no Facebook was that when I was in school and there was no Tumblr and then there was no Duolingo and there was no latitude. And like there's just I could have never guessed any next step of my career, but you have to climb a hill and you have to take a step after the other. And only when you get to the top of that hill, do you see that there's other hills around you that you can climb and maybe there are bigger mountains and there are other opportunities. And so you just have to focus on the next couple of steps. If everything goes right, what will latitude be five years from now? If everything goes right, Latitude will be the place that anyone interested in potentially starting or joining or investing in tech startups in Latin America will go either to learn from like our content. Like I would like for us to have like the reports that you want to go and check to find out like what's going on right now in fintech in Chile or whatever. I want, I want anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship in the future to be able to use our content to learn and get to where they need to be. Our fellowships will, will be the most prestigious, interesting uh, places to meet potential co-founders and find ideas and, and really take steps forward. Our investments will have already done fairly well so that we will be attracting capital from great, smart people all over the world and potentially and hopefully making it so that Latin America continues to be one of the hottest places to invest or to work in tech in the world and not just like right now. And we have big aspirations on our product side of things. We actually closed our seed today, but I can't announce with who yet because we haven't done that, but it's one of the best investors in the world based out of here in the US. And we have big aspirations for what we're going to do with Go and it's going to be what it will become in terms of solving problems for tech startups from a product perspective. And so that's what I'm hoping it'll be like an ecosystem. Well, the future looks bright and congratulations on closing the seed round. This is a big deal and I think this is really, really good for the region. Thank you so much for being with me today. It's been such a pleasure. It's been hilarious and it's been very, very educative. Thank you so much, Olga. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, sorry I made you cry from laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the J-Curve of Latin American Power Women in Tech series. It was really amazing to have Gina as my guest. To learn more about Latitude, go to Latitude.com. And to hear more from us, follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram at Olga Maslikova with KH. The J-Curve is also available on iTunes and Spotify to download, rate, and subscribe. Thanks for being with me today.